Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. A hundred years ago this year, a small radical Russian Social Democratic Party led by a fiery, steely-minded leader came to power. I'm of course referring to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Who was this man, and what were some of the keys to his political thought and the Bolsheviks' political strategy? What did it mean to be a Bolshevik? Why were they the ones that took power in 1917? I turned to Lars Lee for some insight. Lars Lee is a scholar who lives in Montreal, Canada. He has written extensively on Russia's revolutionary history and the early Soviet period. He's the author of several books, including Bread and Authority in Russia, 1914 to 1921, Lenin Rediscovered, What is to be Done in Context, and co-editor with Oleg Naumov and Oleg Klebnuk of The Stalin-Molotov Letters, 1925 to 1936. His most recent book is Lenin, published by Reaction Books. Here's Lars Lee. So most of your work over the last 10 years has focused on challenging some quite can- canonical views of Lenin and his political thought. So why is it important to revisit Lenin, and what are some of the sacred cows you're challenging? I think Lenin have a sort of particular place in our mental landscape in that he's important enough that people have story, want to know about him, tell stories about him, but it's not quite important enough for people to do the real research to, to check out the stories or, or almost to care. So there's some very good stories that circulate around him. They're good stories in that they're paradoxical and they have point and they're not unexpected. And I'll name two of the two or three of the biggest ones. And one is that uh, here is this Marxist revolutionary in, in, in Russia, but he doesn't really understand Marx. He identifies very strongly with the European socialist movement of the time, but he doesn't understand them. And in fact, is a, is a secret revisionist, that word is sometimes used, and that he, that he rejects the whole basis of which they, on which they're standing. He, he's, he's against them. And then, then to make that more precise, it's sort of, here he is, a thoroughgoing Marxist revolutionary, and the Marxists believe in the workers' revolution, and yet Lenin does not believe in the workers. He does not believe they're very revolutionary. He has doubts about them. I call this the worry about workers, that he, which is a phrase I took from historian. So, so that's very paradoxical and interesting. And there are other paradoxes, like he came back in 1917, promptly to, to Russia from Switzerland, promptly rejected everything that he, that he stood for earlier and adopted a new point of view, got his whole party to follow him in a couple of days and, well, a couple of weeks, shall we say, and then uh, and then rode to victory, or that in 1920 he was going crazy, he thought he was going to jump into communism right away, even though the country was devastated, or in 1923 he rejects again, he rejects what he stood for in the past and and on, the, on his deathbed says, no, we need a completely new view of socialism. So so there's a lot of these stories, and they're they're all, you know, unexpected but the funny thing is that these paradoxes become so entrained and we repeat them that we lose the sense that they are paradoxes. So I come along and say, well, 
this, it's a much more common sense. He, he was a Marxist revolutionary and he believed in the workers. That's how what Marxist revolutionaries do. So I sound like the paradoxical person. So I've mentioned some of the, what you say, sacred cows of the stories that go around. And what I'm trying to replace it with in a, a, a bit is I'm sort of a continuity person. And so there are three big continuities that I'm trying to reassert. I've, and one is the continuity between Lenin and revolutionary social democracy. Okay, that term seems like to us a sort of, you know, contradiction in terms, revolutionary social democracy. But back then it was a very real term, and it meant the left wing of the social democratic uh, international social democracy of the time. And its its main spokesmen were Karl Kautsky, Rosa Luxemburg, other people like this. So uh, he was a big admirer. He felt he identified completely with these people. And I would stress Karl Kautsky. He was uh, the most famous Marxist of the time. And Lenin really read every word he wrote and broke with him later. That's why it's a paradox there. I mean, that's a real paradox. But he never broke with what he thought Kautsky stood for. And uh, that's one consistency that I would bring out. The other one is uh, Lenin's own consistency over time, that I don't think he changed his basic views. I don't think there was these big ruptures or rethinkings. Uh, he was not a guy for rethinking. He had his views that he very much believed in, and you know he changed his mind about this and that and the other important issue, but, but his basic views stayed the same. And then I have lately more and more stressing the, with the rest of Bolshevism, with the rest of the other leaders, with the rest of the other people, and there's also a tendency to make Lenin rather special and to even oppose to people around him. And so I, I'm, most of my research these days, and for a long time really, has been not Lenin himself, but the people around him. I've read more Bukharin and Stalin and uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev and Trotsky, and I've read more of these people lately than I've read uh, Lenin himself. So the people sometimes criticize me by saying, oh, Lars overstresses continuity and everything. The funny thing is, is that I am, that I say my, 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 uh, my motto is taking Lenin at his word because he himself is the one who told me about this. And he himself said, I am a great Kautsky fan. I, I am very consistent with my views. Uh, you know, I, we're the ones who are loyal to the old views. And he says this over and over again. So, so again, that's sort of, if, if you go back there and you, number one, let, read what he wrote with a sort of careful mind and then you you look where he points to you you read the people he says he got it gets his views from and you find that indeed there is continuity so why is it why is it important to to show this lenin as opposed to the other lenin first you know simple historical accuracy and and then one thing is first i think to sort of reclaim the marxist movements as an important force there's a tendency to while making lenin the the great revolutionary to sort of cut off the rest of, of, of a great deal of the of the left Marxist movement. And it's sometimes rather strange to me to see dedicated Marxist-type people trashing most of what was Marxists at the time. Okay, that's one reason. I want to sort of recover that. Another reason is I want to recover the Russian Revolution, 1917, especially the, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. So I want to say that it isn't through someone who it isn't crazy that what they were doing. You can disagree with them more, uh, but, but you have to see the human side of it. And then thirdly, uh, if we, we want Lenin is a figure today that's th thrown around, and I want to recover what he really stood for, not particularly to say we should do what Lenin did back then, because he was in a very different situation, and I disagree with some of his take on things very much so. But uh, to uh, to 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 bring back the problems and dilemmas, and in particular, I think the problem of the and the challenge and the opportunity of the combination of socialism and democracy, which the real Lenin is more interesting and more complicated than the than the one we the usual one where he sort of sneers at democracy and so forth. So in your in your short biographical book on, on Lenin, 
you make this really interesting distinction between N. Lenin, the persona, and uh, Ulyanov, the man. So why is it why is this distinction important between the man Ulyanov and the rhetorical creation uh, N. Lenin? Well, I started off by noticing, to my surprise, really, that Vladimir Lenin, whom we that name that which is ahead of his books and at any writings and so forth, that wasn't a real that no one ever thought of that back in the day. And he himself went to some trouble to to keep that distinct. For example, if you see decrees that he wrote when he was head of state, it's written V. Ulyanov and then in parentheses N. Lenin. That is to say, I am now acting as a person in the in the state. I'll use my real name. That was you know so. And he went to some trouble to keep them distinct himself. So, but why? Why do we want to keep them distinct? I think the reason is to see the connection between them, to see the connection between the real person and and the ideas. Which, if if you just if you just sort of read and try to get the ideas and say this is what Lenin stood for, you're going to miss what's important important about the ideas, much less and the political strategy that he stood for. So when you read, uh, I've had this experience when reading him uh, that it, first of all he starts off saying you're wrong and here's where you're wrong and it's polemic and it really gets kind of tiresome. But then right toward the end of this highly polemical issues that are no longer important, he will have a two or three paragraphs or a final. It's often the final paragraph. He'll suddenly get very inspiring, and and his vision of the revolution and and how it's going to work and the the workers are rising up and the, we're moving forward and and we're going to fight the enemy i mean it's 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 very it's it's inspiring and uh, you have to see both sides of him to 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 understand why he had the effect he did if he people did responded to that side of him they respected his analyses of course but they also respected to his genuine vision and uh, again sort of bolshevism in general so it's not only him uh, that we have to keep this distinction bolshevism as we'll say later in this talk i think is was was a political strategy and but behind that political strategy was a sense of a mission sense of historical mission a sense of uh sort of i can do heroic deeds because i'm moving with the forces of history i'm i'm, I'm working with 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 this tidal wave of revolutionary feeling but of course, the sort of things I've been saying to you are are completely different from the sort of cynical Lenin who sort of sits there saying, "Oh God, the workers, uh, they're they're trouble." I don't that that Lenin is sort of he isn't he doesn't have a sense of excitement about being connected to the forces of history because he's fighting against the inertia of history is what we see him. But he, he himself did not operate that way. So before we get into some of those ideas and, and the centrality of them, let, let's talk about the man himself and, and who was Vladimir Ulyanov and how did he become Nikolai Lenin or N. Lenin, the revolutionary? Yeah, well, I could tell the, I could tell the whole biography, but I, uh, when I was looking at that question, I thought I'd, I'd stress one, one important fact, which I think I've seen the connection better, and that's about his brother, his older brother. Ulyanov, you know, Ulyanov were, were a family uh, in provincial Russia in the 1880s or 70s. I mean, that's when he was growing up. He was born in 1870. And his father was like a, a school, a school uh, not teacher, but inspector, went around to try to help the schools. And so there was, a, you know, a progressive but not radical family. And then his older brother went off to Petersburg and got involved in a plot to kill the Tsar in 1887. And the plot was discovered, and he was uh, arrested and uh, executed. So everybody says, and they're absolutely right, that this had a big influence on him. But how and why? And what, what turned him? So I think what it was is that it, he looked at why did his brother throw his life away like this on a sort of harebrained scheme? Because 
revolutionary populism at that time was coming to a dead end politically. They didn't know how to proceed. They had been high hopes earlier. They had been high hopes that when they assassinated the Tsar, which they did do in 1881, two years earlier, that that would cause a revolution or an upbringing or the government would collapse. They were hoping that the peasants would support them. They, it, was, it was going nowhere, and they didn't know a way out. So, so his brother essentially threw his life away. He was So I think that what Lenin, or Yulianov at this point, he sort of said, is there any way out? Is there a way out that we can do this? He's looking around for a way out. And the way out that he found was not just Marxism, but the European Social Democratic Movement the, that was at that time looking very uh, militant and revolutionary. There's a sort of cliche that they were reformist, and, but at that time anyway, and I think later too, they were, they were standing up to the German government. They were, they were hassled and persecuted. So, and furthermore, they were a mass party and they were militant, very militant. So uh, that showed you could combine them. So, and he could see that. So he said, if that's true in Germany, it could be true in Russia. It's not in in Russia in 1892 or whenever he sort of made his, you know, final step into being a Marxist social democrat. There wasn't much of things. This gave him a perspective. It wasn't much movement then, but there, there was a perspective moving forward. So what I found, and it's in the, it's sort of documented in the book that. When you are aware of these issues, you see that Lenin often referred to his brother, not by name, but what he said was, and I've got a number of these quotes in my book, this justifies the individual revolutionaries of the past who had to fight solitary, who now we have a mass movement. Now we can accomplish the tasks that they were not able to do. So, so, that's, so that's, again, paradoxically, because we're supposed to be, uh, Lenin's supposed to be conspiratorial and uh, high elite of leaders that, that have, are not connected to the masses. And yet, that's what Lenin himself, when he reacted to his brother, he said, now we've got what, what my brother lacked, a mass movement. And he says this many times. That, that feeds into one of the central things you point out in this, this short biographical book on Lenin, and that is the centrality of the heroic class leadership. So what is this and what role does it play in his politics? And how did that fit into the Bolshevik, being a Bolshevik? So what, what I'm right now concentrating on and showing is that essentially what Bolshevism was, what it stood for, was a political strategy, a specific political strategy for revolution in Russia, a, a political strategy based on uh, a reading of the class forces. So they gave it a name, which is hegemony. That's, and that word appears all over the place in their writings of the time, when, when I mean before 1917. Now, that's, we've got to be careful with that word for obvious reasons. It's, it has a lot of extra meanings that it's taken on since. So, so we have to be very specific about what they meant, the Bolsheviks. And by the way, it was one of these funny things is that for some reason the translators of Lenin into English often did not felt that was too learn it a word or something, so they often don't translate it. There's some other terms that they that they obscure, not for political reasons, I think just for stylistic reasons, but it's unfortunate. So the uh, hegemony was a, a, a scenario of class leadership. That's where we're going back to that. But it was, it was a strategy of, uh, you know, in 1905, they had a revolution that failed. How do we, how do we, it didn't, it didn't go all the way. So how do we get the revolution to go all the way to accomplish all that can be accomplished uh, at the time. And the strategy of the Bolsheviks was the socialist proletariat, led by, uh, led by the Social Democratic Party, by the Bolsheviks, the, the socialist proletariat would provide political leadership to the peasantry or the whole people, the Narod. And specifically, we would reject and, and make sure that the, the liberals, the educated elite, the reformers, the, in the, those days, fairly 
radical and even revolutionary liberals, uh, revolutionary liberals, again, is another contradictory term, but back then it was a very, they were, that were, they were real people of that type because they were against the Tsar. We must reject their leadership because if, 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 they, if they lead the revolution, they, if the peasantry follows them, we will not go as far as we need to and uh, they'll, they'll the peasants won't get their full. They won't get the full pro, their own program. They won't. They won't. Get, we won't be continued. So even though back then they weren't talking about socialism in Russia, immediate socialism in Russia, or anything like that, they emphasized the political leadership of the by the proletariat of the peasants. So the other mainstream, you know, the Mensheviks, went the other way, and their fear was that uh, they didn't think the peasants were disciplined or knowledgeable or organized or. Modern enough, I think, as what maybe to actually be a reliable force. Yes, we're we're helping the peasants, but so forth. But we can't really rely on them. So it, what's important is that, say the Mensheviks, that that the workers we push the revolution forward by pushing on the the liberals to go to to go forward because they're the, they're the progressive force so so these are two possible strategies and in a sense it's sort of a choice you have to make if you're a worker we're going to go with the peasants against the liberals or are you going to go with the liberals and hope the peasants don't get too alienated so and, and i i would stress that they're both have things people have things to say about both i mean have arguments for both sides it's not black and white or anything like that but now we had the heroic class leadership because so it's not only a political strategy it is sort of a, a sense of the people leading the people the, the narod leading the narod that is to say one part of the narod the proletariat is going to lead in, in the cities is going to lead the peasants and we're going to do it against the elite we're going to do it on our own uh, we're going to carry out this great mission of making uh, russia a more progressive and, and modern place we're going to get rid of that horrible czarist system it's sort of a vision as my teacher back in the old day my thesis advisor robert tucker said was dual russia one one was the people one was the elite we're going to break rise up the people and so that's so that class leadership is means Leadership of one class or the other uh, going forward in, in sort of a way to carry out a great historical mission. And it also means leadership within the class of the revolutionaries. And they, 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 did, they did put a great stress on their own leadership, on their own, uh, on their own. But the reason they did that is they thought they were going to get, they were confident they were going to get a great response from the rest of the working class and from the peasants. So that's, I say somewhere that a heroic leaders require heroic followers. That is, if if you see yourself as someone who's leading the masses forward, you have to sort of have an idea that they're going to follow you. So that's it, to understand that we have to reject completely the idea that Lenin looked down on the masses and despised peasants, that he despised workers, that he despised practically everybody. You know, the bottom line here is that there's a combination of a class strategy that's based on you know some fairly rational, detailed arguments about the fact that the the landowners and the peasant interests are clashing, and the landowners and the liberals will stay together. It's, it's you know it's an analysis of the what they called at the time the driving forces, but this emotional sort of self-image and a sense of accomplishing a great historical mission, great great deeds. And I want to add one fact here is because partly because I've just been doing this, but that that this was endorsed by Karl Kautsky, and in an important article reading uh, that he wrote in 1906 called "Driving Forces of the of the Russian Revolution," and when he wrote this article in 1906, Lenin and Trotsky both were just ecstatic and wrote these saying, "Kautsky's with us. Kautsky, look at what he's saying. He's rejecting." So, 
So Kautsky and the, and the Bolsheviks, they were very much on the same page prior to, you know, the, they turned against each other after the World War I started. But at, at this time, they were quite close. Now, one of the things that um, you also point out, and you've been working on this recently as well, is is the the concept of vlast. And in English, this is rendered as power, but it doesn't really capture this what it means. And the issue of vlast is a central feature of Lenin's politics, and uh, and it becomes increasingly important, of course, uh, after in the revolution in 1917. So, what is this concept of vlast, and what importance does it play in his thought? Okay. Yes, there are a couple of words that I'm. I, I hate to keep words in Russian more than necessary, but one is lost, and one another one is norod, which means the people. Like you say, people power and norod and I have lost. <laughs> They're almost the same thing, but they for me mean different things. So lost. If I were to explain, try to explain why that's not very good, well translated by power. It's, it's like power is is a. In, in our usage is a quantitative thing. So like uh, you have more power than me or I have more power than you or the trade unions have more power than business. That makes perfect sense. There's nothing wrong with that. No, like uh, where it doesn't make any sense to say I have more floss than you. Uh, no, I have the loss and you don't or, or the other way around. And so one way that people have tried to work around this is to translate the power instead of power, you know, uh, but that's already where it's not. Yeah, yeah. So, so authority, but sovereign authority. So it ha it's the idea of sovereignty. It's the idea of the final choice. So that's why the term dual power, okay, you know, if that, we tend to think of that as just power sharing, which makes perfect sense. So, you know, uh, the government has some power and the Patriot Soviet has another power, so it's dual power. But no, it, it, in Russian, it, it, it is a sense of, of a very paradoxical situation. It's like, you're the sovereign and I'm the sovereign, and we can't. You can't do that. It, it's a, a recipe for 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 anarchy and disaster. So no one at the time thought the dual power was workable. Or it, it was a phrase meaning duovastia. It was a phrase meaning two contenders for the for sovereignty and, and it's intolerable. So that's the phrase "all power to the Soviets." That's where the all comes from. Let's not mess around with if if we're going to have popular sovereignty, Soviet sovereignty, we have to have all of it. Can't uh, we can't share it because it can't be shared. You can't share velocity. So uh, so that's that's one reason why the translation term, the translation issue, is important. Now back to Lenin and Bolshevism. So. In the, I was talking about their idea of hegemony. One of the things that they say I, is that during the revolution, this combination of the proletariat and peasantry must take over the vlast, at least for a while, to carry the revolution through the end. You can't do it from below. You can't do it through putting pressure. You have to put the question uh, of the vlast right uh, at the center. And this is true even if you're not thinking in terms of long-term staying in power. Which they didn't. That they they were they weren't thinking in those terms back then. So they were thinking in terms when they came into 1917. They were thinking in those terms, and right away started talking about about Soviet power. And so that's termed Soviet power means is Sovietsky of lost. It means of lost uh, a sovereign authority that's based on the Soviets, which means based on the workers and peasants essentially. I mean the Soviets is is a vehicle for this class class alliance. So it was central when they came in, and it was one reason why they could orient themselves so fast. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit later about about this issue. But there was another reason why Vlast turns out to be extremely important in the whole concept of the uh, whole process of the Russian Revolution, and that is that when the dynasty fell, 
in 19, uh, you know, in February, as you point out, about almost exactly 100 years ago, when he, when not only Nicholas II abdicated, but he abdicated for his son, and then his brother also abdicated, so the dynasty was out. And the dynasty had been there for 300 years. And so there was suddenly the, the what they call the historic Vlast, the Storichiskaya Vlast, was not there. And there was no, no, no legitimate Vlast, and so the provisional government tried to claim it was, and the Soviet said, it wasn't an average Russian said, who, who do I obey? Who do I give my oath of loyalty to? Who has the right to give orders? And when this person gives orders and that person gives orders, who do I follow? Who is? And this is a very, very severe problem. It's the problem that Thomas Hobbes, the great political philosopher, concentrated on. So I call myself sometimes a Hobbes, Hobbesian or a Hobbesist or something. So that turned out to be a, a crucial problem throughout the Civil War. And, and I, I, I call the Bolsheviks pre-selected for that. They, they were already thinking in those terms. And that was one reason, many, that they ended up being the Vlast because uh, they were already sort of saying, let's, we need to put together a Vlast and, and solve these problems. And the interesting thing is that some moderate and right-wing people, and I've written an article on this, also looked at the Bolsheviks and said they are putting back they are putting back the vlast that Russia needs. I, I'm not, I don't share their politics. I don't. I'm not a socialist or a revolutionary, but I do see that 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 the country had fallen apart and that, that there was no legitimate and that these people are putting it back together again. I don't like the often don't like the way they're doing it, but they're doing it, and probably no one else could. So that's another reason. And then one more reason why vlast is important is that the way the Bolsheviks thought about it was. What's important is which class has the last. It isn't so important exactly what you do with this last at, at any one moment because you're you know you're opening up the possibility of going down a road. If you don't have the last, you can't go down that road. So so that's absolutely essential. Then how far you go down the road, or if you take detours, I mean the road to socialism is what I'm thinking about. That that can be negotiated. So you know uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't fundamental to them that they weren't jumping it. They weren't carrying out tremendously socialist measures. What was fundamental to them was that they had, that they preserved the Vlast against all comers and were then able, had fought out the right to go down that path. So this is, is this why you, in your conception of 1917, so February to October, you see this as one continuous process rather than kind of two, two separate different revolutions occurring in, in different parts of the year? Yeah, it's yes. It, what, what I see now, this is stepping back a little bit from from you know trying to figure out Bolshevism. Although of course they play the role. I, I'm now what happened in 1917. So, and I'll preface this by saying there was an article in the New York Times about a week ago, and it was talking about the fact that the Russian government is not doing much to revolution. And they said what ha what happened in 1917 was that there was a provisional government in February, and then it was taken over by the marginal. That was the word used Bolsheviks in October. So, what have they left out? They left out the Soviet, and the Soviet, the, was the Petrograd Soviet arose instantly in, in the February days. Uh, at the same time that the, you know, even really before the Tsar abdicated, the, the, the Petrograd Soviet was was being formed. It was formed by a combination of people in the factories just electing their people and also the local activists. Everybody understood this idea so it could be happen very fast and, and, and effectively. This group of people that was because it was based on the Petrograd population and the Petrograd soldiers, very important, the Petrograd soldiers in the garrison essentially had the final say, had the final say on uh, questions of program and on questions of personnel. So when they was first formed, 
they they were very happy to give the to, to turn the government over to the provisional government, which was you know elite reformers, elite anti-Zarist figures. Because why not? These people are were international figures. They were famous. They were they should they promised to do these things. They were they were the they represented the educated society elite society that that you needed to run the country. So let's give them the government. And but but we're going to first send one of our own, uh, Alexander Kerensky, who has started off as a member of the Soviet. And secondly, we're going to say, here's our program. We support you insofar as, there's a famous phrase, insofar as you carry out the program. Well, what that means is that we have the final say as to what the, what the government program is. And we're allowing you to be the government as long as you carry out the program. So during the year, the real question was not whether there should be Soviet sovereignty, Soviet vlast. It was whether or not uh, they could, Soviet Vlast could stay in existence if it could it cooperate with the elite reformers, with the with the elite liberals and so forth. And what happened in October was they figured out they couldn't. They couldn't. Uh, that the elite was going. The, the, and the other side was also saying we have we can't work with the with the Soviet. They're interfering. They're so that's why I have a sort of my little punchline is that is that in October the real it's not the Soviets overthrowing the provisional government. It's a provisional government failing to overthrow the Soviets. But by that time, the provisional government was like on its last legs. So the Soviet essentially decided to stay in existence. And in order to do that, they had to choose leaders that would, 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 do, would support them in this endeavor. And there was only one party at the time, only one that would do that. That's the Bolsheviks. So, so when you look at it from that standpoint is even less of a coup than you know, people say. It, it, what it is, is is Soviet power, which was in some sense this operative from from February, deciding that they needed to 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 accept Bolshevik leadership and stay in power. Now, of course, that was a very fateful choice and things happened afterwards that, that were unexpected and unfortunate, but it was also necessary. There's a phrase I picked up from, from the author John Barth that I like. Uh, it's a passionate lack of alternatives. And, and that's what I think was happening in October, you know. Now, another sacred cow that you've challenged uh, in how we understand Lenin and particularly the Bolsheviks in 1917 is you've been examining the role of the April Theses, Lenin's April Theses, and then the slogan, all power to the Soviets. So so how should we rethink these two very important things in our understanding of 1917? Uh, again, it's back to what I was saying earlier. I'm stressing continuity, continuity with the past and continuity with the other Bolsheviks. So... And it's not so much I'm looking at a, the, the April thesis and seeing something different from what people say. I'm more looking closely, really, for the first time. No one's really done research on this as to what the, exactly the other Bolsheviks were doing and thinking. So there's the there's stories about them that they came back and they were, especially Stalin and Kamenev, you know, who are pretty tough, smart cookies, but they're supposed to come back and be completely confused and and, and not know what to do and practically support the provisional government, which was like imperialists and uh, i mean i'm not that's not just a phrase of the left that they were that's what they were and they they didn't understand that they were against soviet power so essentially that's not true uh not all and they they were first for soviet power they didn't think they could do it right then they didn't think they could go out and put the soviet's power and one good reason for that was that the soviet constituency the the people who supported the soviet the workers and the peasants they didn't they didn't want to do that they weren't they didn't see the necessity for it at that time so it, it, it but they were they were they, they were confident that that the that provisional government would disgrace itself and that the Soviet would come to power. So so that's the first thing. Lenin is supposed to come back and set them straight, but he didn't need to set them straight. And then 
so there were things in the in the April theses that are that caused some problems. There was a real there was a debate. But why did it go, why was it so fast? Why was it so go over so quickly? Why was people who expressed problems with it, like Kamenev, still in the leadership at the end of April? The reason was I maintain, and I you know I have my reasons for this, is that it was more a, a clearing up of misunderstandings, really, because he would say things like. I want to shift the whole center of gravity from the peasants to the agricultural proletariat. Well, I don't, I don't exactly know what he meant by this, but people said, Lenin, uh, <laughs> Comrade Lenin, are you saying that the revolution that's going on now where the peasants are taking the land, that's over? We, 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 we don't need to do that? And essentially, Lenin said, of course not. I'm perfectly aware we have a peasant majority. I'm perfectly aware that... Uh, Taking the land is, is central. So they worked out, you know, the guy just come back. They had to work out what they think. And I don't, what, what they meant. He had some misconceptions about what they were saying. They had mis misconceptions. So really, uh, there's some misunderstandings here. And again, I'm not just say, saying this. They themselves said, oh, we've worked out our misunderstanding. Then the, finally, the slogan, all power of the Soviets. Well, I've explained some of that with, you know, all power of the Soviets. The slogan, uh, the thinking behind it was uh, that the Soviets, meaning the workers and peasants should have the Vlast. We explained why that was important. We need the Vlast to carry out the, the task of the revolution. And we need all the Vlast. That is, we cannot cooperate with the, with the elite. But that's a great slogan. Uh, this is, this is kind of a footnote, but it's not, you know, more than a footnote. That's a great slogan. Those three words in Russian. It, as I say, it's uh, short enough to put on a banner and wide enough to cover almost any issue uh, that's, that you may mention. So, so where did that slogan come from? And, and at a certain point, it took me a while to even ask this question. Where did it come from? Where, where was the first Jews? Well, if you read the, read historians, it came when Lenin came back with the April Theses. But that's not true. It's not in the April Theses. It's not, I mean, the thinking is, the ideas are all there and they're with the other people. It's, they have a party conference where they pass resolutions in, uh, at the end of the April. It's not there either. And again, they haven't sort of found that form of putting their ideas. So I'm kind of glad to say that, as I say, I have some good stories too. <laughs> it's not only the other side that has a good story. So the good story here is that this slogan was first seen on a banner in uh, the in, in demonstrations at the end of April. There were mass demonstrations against the government. It's called the April Crisis or the April Days. And so these people were carrying around these banners in a, in a, in a demonstration of, of uh, hostility toward the provisional government and its foreign policy in particular. And Lenin saw it. He wrote about it in some article they wrote at that time. And then a little bit later, he put it into uh, in, in some article. And then finally, I sort of the first time I've seen the, uh, it officially used in a sort of unsigned official document was I think May seventh. So, so the slogan "All Power of the Soviets" is is a distillation uh, and a very good one of uh, uh, of what the Bolsheviks were saying. But it only was discovered in in, in early May. So uh, this, you know, it's, uh, so it's another reason for for April Theses played the, played its part in the uh, series of events from the revolution to that time when they discovered that. But it, we shouldn't overrate what the importance, and we should especially not overrate ruptures and Lenin set it everybody straight and everything like that. It's, it was a much more collaborative process, and so Lenin is he Lenin is responsible for that slogan not because he dreamed it up, but because he saw it and he saw it. Uh, he realized its potential, and he, I'm sure he was the one who, who, who made it central. So I, I think that I'm. This is a very complimentary toward Lenin that he came back, listened to people, worked out the process, got everybody on board, revised some of 
of his own views because he you know had been away from the country for years and and pulled the team together it was a very impressive uh, accomplishment yeah well let's talk about that that the the bolsheviks in in a wider sense in 1917 because you know in alexander rabinovich's books um he he argues that lenin and the bolsheviks which were a really small party in 19 the beginning of 1917 they rode a wave of of popular support into power so talk about what what were the bolsheviks doing in 1917 that made them such an effective political force in their ability to not only take power in October, but uh, more importantly, to hold on to it. This question is sort of a summary of all I've been saying before, because they had, they came in and they had a longstanding political strategy, which fit the situation like a hand in a glove. Right at the beginning, they said the provisional government is not going to satisfy the people. It's not going to carry out the revolutionary program in any satisfactory way. Number two, uh, we've always said that the, that the Vlash should have belong to the workers and peasants uh, to carry out the revolution. Now, one thing they did not say was that we're going to have a socialist revolution, that those that word social revolution. They didn't, I'm sure that they said to themselves that they made a decision, conscious decision, not to use those, that term, socialist revolution, in their propaganda, because I don't see it, and it's just not there. They, they, they avoid it. What they're carrying out is the revolution, and, and it means the revolutionary program of peace, you know, we all know this, the drill, <laughs> peace, land, and economic regulation, state, uh, a radical anti-capitalist really state program. So it was anti-bourgeois. That's, that's why I have this phrase, the anti-bourgeois democratic revolution, because, but it was not talking about replacing capitalism with socialism in any time future. They, they thought that this, this might happen in, in European Russia and one of their widely and overestimated wildly that's the word i want wildly overestimated uh, the chances of, of revolution in, in europe europe itself by, by the workers although i can't blame them too much because i gave them the courage to do what they were they were do this very courageous thing they were doing but so from the beginning they had a message that was going to resonate they were right <laughs> that's why they won they were right they came in and this is a little hard for people to first as people my academic friends are a little hard to accept that that the, the Bolsheviks made sense, you know, and then my activist friends don't like it because it downplays the importance for a lot of them. It's very important that that they declared a socialist revolution, but they didn't, and uh, they didn't need to. And uh, I've just been reading the actual Second Congress of Soviet the material from that, that one in October, which declared gave the Bolsheviks power, and no one mentioned socialism. Neither the Bolsheviks nor their critics. The, the, the people who are against them don't say, you're carrying out this crazy socialist program. No. They say, you're not legitimate, uh, you shouldn't have, you, you won't be able to carry out your peace program, you're doing, you don't have the people with you. It's uh, questions of that kind. So, that's, uh, I think they had a good message. They they were long used to, they were focused on the Vlast, they thought about it, they uh, started off with a strategy of one, the, the Soviets will Join it. We'll recognize this if we give them their message. We'll give them the message, and events will back up our message, and that's what happened. So the ability to stay on message, and it was a good message. The message was: you will not solve your problems until you have the full vlast. Yeah, you will not get peace working with the generals. You will not get land by working with the landowners. You won't get radical economic regulation by working with the capitalists. And finally, what is the Len what does Lenin's and the Bolshevik legacy give us today? It's a tough question because. As a historian, I get so much putting them in their context 
then uh, that uh, that I sort of have a hard time, you know, getting him out and saying, "What would you do today?" Because it was a very different set of problems, and it was also a very Russian set of problems. I think I would say one of the thrusts of my work is to sort of see the Bolsheviks as a Russian strategy by Russian social democrats. It was um, a social democratic Marxist strategy, but it was one worked out to apply to Russia. Well, so what is it? I, I, I would say couple of things. One, one is first sort of courage of uh, facing the facts and uh, and working with sort of taking the, not listening to to the people who said the people can't do this, the, you know, the, the, you can't go against the elite, you can't go against the allies, you know, so that was another reason that people said, you know, the allies will come in and crush the revolution, or the Germans or the allies, you know, one of the two. So, so there's a certain you know, an example of courage. Uh, then there's the whole question of uh, democracy and socialism together. And the point of my is that it's much more complicated than just saying, well, he was anti-democratic and that's a bad thing. That's part of it. That is to say, they certainly set down free elections and, and uh, free press and all that stuff. And that had dire consequences. The, the, um, the, par- the paradox there is that they were fighting for that. They were fighting for political freedom. It's the top of their program. Uh, prior, that's another little discovery of mine. But it is the so some of the other things that are going on is that the greatest democratic achievements, uh, democratic in the in the wide sense of the word, meaning uh, uh, land of the peasants, uh, uh, equal rights for women, uh, basic welfare state, uh, uh, commitment to education. You know the basic uh, what they call democratic things. The, you can only get them if you have socialist leadership. That is, they have people who 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 have other reasons, who are dedicated enough to do it. To it. So uh, that's that's what uh, that that thought goes back a while. Uh, it's in you can find it already in Marx to some extent. And uh, later on, there people said, you know, the bourgeois Democrats, they're kind of a feeble support of democracy. The real support of democracy in in Europe and Russia is. Uh, are the socialists. So that lesson is sort of a very ambiguous lesson. It's no clear thing like uh, we can be inspired by Lenin to do this or that. It's, it, I think we should just learn as much as we can about it and respect it as a human human endeavor by real humans. They're not caricatures. They're not crazy utopians. They face real problems. And there's something heroic about, you know, they thought of themselves as heroic and there was something heroic about what they did. So, you know, disaster and triumph together, we have to sort of uh, put them together. That was Lars Lee. Lars Lee has written extensively on Russia's revolutionary history in the early Soviet period. He's the author of several books, including Bread and Authority in Russia, 1914 to 1921, Lenin Rediscovered, What is to be Done in Context, and co-editor with Oleg Nomov and Oleg Klevnuk of The Stalin Molotov Letters, 1925 to 1936. His most recent book is Lenin, published by Reaction Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. The sound you are hearing is a relatively new one. Who is making the sound?
Cornito. <laughs>